Well, good morning. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here, in case you didn't know that. Um, Pastor Luke was on vacation last week, so I get, have the privilege of preaching this Sunday, and it is a joy to do that. This morning's text will continue in the book of Mark, and we'll be in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. So let's turn there and we'll read it. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we praise you for the opportunity to come here this morning and worship you because of Jesus because of the cross, Lord. And we rejoice. Our only hope is in you, Lord, through Jesus. And we thank you so much for your great love poured out through him on the cross. This morning, as we go to your word, I pray that your spirit would be moving in hearts, that it would move in my heart and each person's heart who is here, whether they know Christ as Lord and Savior. I pray that their eyes would be lifted and they would rejoice and worship. And I pray for those who who don't know Christ and maybe are unsure about the gospel, I pray that you would even use this message this morning, your word going forth and the power of your spirit to bring some to your kingdom this morning. We thank you and we love you in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus is a totally different kind of king. We can see this by contrasting with any leader who's ever lived in the history of the world. Mark Dever, who is pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in in, uh, Washington, D.C., writes this about contrasting him with, uh, contrasting Jesus with Muhammad. He says this, In no other manner are the differences between Muslims and Christians more sharply contrasted than in the difference between the characters and legacies of their prophets. Perhaps the contrast is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and Jesus entered Jerusalem. He says, Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control as its new religious political, and military leader. 
But Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, accompanied by 12 disciples. He was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm fronds, a traditional symbol of peace. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the Jews mistook him for an earthly secular king who was to free them from the yoke of Rome, whereas Jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom. End quote. Jesus is indeed a different kind of leader. Jesus is a different kind of king. And we'll see that this morning. This morning we enter into the last third of the Gospel of Mark, which is believed to follow the last week of Jesus' life. So things are coming to a head. Now, we, we, in the beginning of the book of Mark, we saw how um, it really clearly laid out who Jesus is. It, it, it declared that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and he is Lord of everything. And we see in his ministry, his authoritative teaching, along with his miracles, verify he is indeed who he says he is. And we've just come off the middle section of Mark where he begins to tell his disciples how he will come into his kingdom. He says he is going to die. And multiple times they reject it. They say, no, no, Jesus. Jesus' death will soon become a reality in our study. Now, with this passage being kind of the classic Palm Sunday passage, I'm guessing most of you have probably heard it preached on about as many times as years you've been a Christian, right? So I'm guessing a lot of you are very familiar with this passage, but just in case you're not, that's okay, this is a passage in which Jesus is declaring himself to be that king. Crowds have tried to crown him and carry him on their shoulders as king, and right now he He allows it. He declares himself to be the Messiah, the king that was promised long ago. And though he doesn't shout it from the mountaintops, the crowds do it for him as he passes through. So I want to ask you a question this morning. If you were elected president, what would you wear to your inauguration? Guys, I'm guessing most of you wouldn't go to that drawer that has the nasty t-shirts and shorts that you work on the lawn and work on the garage with. The one that your wife is always saying, you need to throw out those t-shirts. They're nasty. I'm guessing you wouldn't go there, right? And ladies, if you were elected president, what would you wear to your inauguration? I'm guessing you probably wouldn't go to the neighborhood uh, rummage sale to find a suit to wear to your inauguration. You'd want to you'd dress well. You'd want to dress the part. After all, you'd be one of the most powerful leaders in the world. You'd want to dress the part and, 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 and do that well. But then there's Jesus, and he's a different kind of king, right? He's the owner of a, the cattle on a thousand hills. Any stallion that's ever been ridden by the greatest kings of the world, he owned it. And yet he rides in to announce he's king on a donkey. Now, why? Why would the one destined to be king of the universe do that? Why would he ride in on a donkey? As my cardiologist said at my appointment, I have annual appointments um, with a cardiologist you know, each year. He, said, uh, we, he asked me about my sermon. We got to talking about it. And then I explained a little bit about the text. And I said, you know, Jesus announced he was king and he rode in on a donkey. And he said, but a donkey in that part of the world, that's a stupid animal. And I was like, you're right, he, he, he was coming in humbly, right? Um, Jesus does this because he's a different kind of king. He's one whose life is characterized by both majesty and meekness. Think about it. Those not recorded in Mark's gospel, when Jesus came into this world, not only did he show his majesty and his meekness, 
uh, by riding on a donkey. He did it by coming into this world. Not only did he become a human, which is humbling enough when you're God, the Son in heaven, he also became a little baby that was 100% dependent on his creation to care for him and nourish him so he'd be sustained. And not only was he any baby, he was a baby that was not born in the finest of rooms, in the finest of cribs, right? He was born and laid in an animal feeding trough, and he lay among animals. He was a very, he is a very meek king. We see his meekness continue throughout his ministry. He doesn't live among royalty. He doesn't live among the rich. He lives among the poor. Jesus himself said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And in this passage here, we see the king who had every right to come in on a war horse, declaring war. He comes in on a donkey, proclaiming peace. And this act actually fulfills a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, which says this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Lord, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The interesting thing about these words is they were given to the people of God through the prophet of Zechariah in a time when they really thought, is God ever going to be among us again? Because they knew they had turned away from God. They knew that they didn't deserve his presence and they thought, is he ever going to put up with us ever again? And, and look at this prophecy that God sends to them. These are the words he sends to his people who have turned and abandoned him and they're wondering, is this ever going to happen? He says through Zechariah, these words of mercy and comfort. He says, Rejoice, O Israel. I'm sending a righteous king to you who will bring salvation, and you will know him because he comes riding humbly on a donkey. Now we know that the, the majesty of Jesus, the meek majesty of Jesus, doesn't peak with him riding in on a donkey, nor in his infancy, nor in his life of poverty. It peaks in how our king brings about the this, this salvation that Zechariah speaks of. Zechariah goes on in verses 12 and 13, and he basically says that this king who is to come on this donkey will be pierced, he will be struck down. That means he will be killed. And it goes on to say that he will return to be looked upon again. Right? Do you see the cross in that picture Jesus, again, he's the king of the universe. He had every right to come in on a war horse and to, to declare war on the sin of humanity. And yet he rides in humbly on a donkey to go to a cross so he can declare war on sin by defeating it on the cross and rising again so that we can be his people. He took the punishment that we deserved when he went to the cross. We deserve to stand before God and to be judged for our sin, and yet he comes in lovingly. He humbles himself, not to just be a man, not to just be a baby, not to just ride on a donkey, but to go to his death so that we could be counted righteous in Christ. And his kindness in going to the cross is meant to lead us to repentance. It's meant to compel our hearts to see the love of God and how glorious and great he is so that we would turn from living for ourselves and for this world and we would live for this meek and majestic king. So if you've never done that, 
if you've never heard the gospel and responded to it and given your life to Christ, I would encourage you this morning to think about the gospel and I would encourage you to give him your life. This meek and majestic king is totally worth it. And Christian brothers and sisters, just as a lowly donkey was commissioned by this king to be used for his kingdom, we too, lowly sinners, have been called out of darkness and into life to be commissioned to be used for his kingdom. Praise God. We can be about the Lord's work, lowly sinners like us, brought into his kingdom from darkness into light to live to the praise of his glory. Moving on to Mark 11, verse 7 if you want to follow along. It says, uh, And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. We can see God's sovereign hand all over this coronation, okay? From Zechariah's prophecy, which predicted it, to the donkey's location where the d- disciples were able to locate it, all the way down to the, the donkey's owners or whoever it was that caught them taking the donkey that said, okay, you can take it. I mean, think about it. If someone came to your driveway and said, and just started taking your car, and you said, whoa, what are you doing? And I said, no, no, it's okay. My master wants it. You wouldn't be like, oh, okay, okay, your master wants it. Go Even if it's a clunker, you're not going to give it to him. You can see the sovereignty of God over this moving in people's hearts that just as when Christ called the disciples and they walked away from their nets, these people respond to God and that they let go of their donkey so that our Lord and Savior can ride on it. We also see God's sovereignty in the crowd being present there at that time and how they assembled so that Jesus could walk through. And God's plan was for Jesus to declare himself king in this moment, and he brought a crowd that would celebrate this coronation, a crowd that would lay down the best red carpet that they could, ma- um, that they could manage. As Luke's gospel tells us, they would sing and shout with joy that was just bubbling up inside of them. They would shout, Hosanna, as Jesus went through, which means, God, please save us. And they identified him as the promised king of David. And yet this coronation, just like the donkey being ridden through it, it's not what you would expect from the high king of heaven, is it? No nobles are present, but rather a ragtag group of people who are basically nobodies of the time. His red carpet consisted of tattered garments and leaves picked alongside of the road. I want you to just picture this scene for a second, what it would have looked like from the outside. Here comes the carpenter of Nazareth, plodding through on a donkey, presenting himself as a king surrounded by fishermen and tax collectors. Compared to a Roman coronation, this would have looked like a comedic skit to them. But this king and his kingdom are like no other. And the crowd was right in everything they said, and they were right to give Jesus the royal treatment. He was a king who was about to receive his kingdom but they didn't understand what kind of a king he would be and they didn't understand the kind of kingdom he would rule. It really seems that they were ready to receive Christ coming into Jerusalem as in a way that Mohammed went into Mecca, right? They really, it seems they foresaw him coming in, overthrowing Rome, taking over, being king of basically the world and that all nations would submit to him. 
but God's plan was that his king would come to be the leader, sorry, but God's plan was not that he would be a king that would come to be a leader of a military or political movement because his kingdom is not of this world. In John 18, 36, Jesus says just that. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus did not come to make Israel great again or Rome great again, and he didn't come to make America great again. And in the same way, he didn't come so that we could be better together either. He came humbly and died on a cross to purchase a church who would live to the praise of his glory now, here on this earth, and throughout eternity. His goal, God's goal through his son, Jesus Christ, is not to build Christian nations. It's to build a church that is capable of living for his glory among all the nations, whether those nations tolerate Christians or they are the vilest of persecutors of Christians. God's will is to build his church among every tribe, nation, and tongue. So as citizens of the United States of America, I just want to make this clear. Yes, we should be politically active in ways that glorify Christ. We live in a country where we are blessed to be able to have a voice, and we should act on that in a way that seeks to glorify God. And yes, the government is ordained by God. He has placed it over the people in the world for good, and they don't always... They don't always follow that good that it's laid out to do, but, but God has laid out government to order society, to govern business and the society, to maintain an army to protect the country, and also to protect life and property, things like police officers and judges. Those are all good things that maintain order. And, and Scripture lays that out pretty clearly. As a U.S. citizen, we can and should influence our country in this way, politically. But as citizens of the kingdom that is not of this world, we proclaim the gospel because it's the only true hope for a fallen world. Only, and I mean only, the gospel can bring about true change, eternal change, as people are brought from the domain of darkness and come under Christ's reign. And the kingdom of God is only advanced through the proclaiming of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. So because, the God, because Christ's kingdom is not of this world, we proclaim the gospel. We share the good news of Jesus Christ. So I encourage you this morning to think about loving your non-Christian friends, your non-Christian neighbors, non-Christian family members. Share the gospel with them. You see their sin. You see their flaws. Nothing is going to fix that except for the gospel being proclaimed to them and the Spirit of God working in their hearts bringing about a new creation in them. Only then will they be truly changed and they will be changed forever. And as the disciples in this crowd expected an earthly king, if you think about in the gospel after the cross, they're really disappointed, right? They're fixing their eyes on an earthly kingdom. The cross happens and they run away and they go back to their jobs and the crowd leaves. And I just encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters, we know the whole story. We look to the cross and we don't get discouraged. We look to the cross and we draw near to God because our hope's not in an earthly kingdom. We know that 
We're going to have trials and we're going to have troubles on this earth, in this fallen world, but we draw near to God through Jesus because his kingdom will stand forever. We know that through pain and suffering, Christ was exalted as head of this kingdom and he sits at the right hand of the Father where he's reigning for us. And in the same way, we are called to bear our crosses. We're called to sometimes suffer in this fallen world. But just as Jesus was exalted, we too will be exalted with him and his kingdom will reign forever. And we will reign with him in glory. So do not lose hope. Our country may go this way or that way. The nations of the world may be all over the place. ISIS may rise or fall. Your personal health may fail you. But God's kingdom will stand forever because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can, we can stand on that. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says something similar like this. Paul says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are Seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. These things, God's kingdom will last forever. And if you have Christ, you are in God's kingdom. This brings us to verse 11. And this verse could easily be read as um, a quick ending to their day. Uh, Let's read it, verse 11. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That's not going to work. It seems like what's happening here is they're trekking to Jerusalem. We've been talking about it. They've been doing this for a while. It seems like they get there and they could stay 20 minutes away at their friend's house that they're going to stay at or they could go into town. And it seems like what they're doing is going into town because the main attraction is the temple. Let's go see it and then we'll head back 20 minutes out of town again. And look, it really seems like that's what's happening. But I would like to say there's more happening than that this morning. And in order to see it, we're going to have to kind of travel through Scripture. So bear with me and uh, I hope that you're able to see this. Um, I, want you to, I want to start with thinking about what the temple functioned to do. Okay, the temple. And because we just went through the book of Exodus, it may be even helpful to think back to Exodus, to the tabernacle. If you remember, God redeemed Israel out of slavery and he brought them out and at the mountain he made a covenant with them. He said, you will be my people. This is the covenant. This is how you will live and I will be your God. And, and so he makes a covenant and he has them erect the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is where Sacrifices will be made for sin because the people are sinful just like you and I and they needed atonement which pointed forward to Christ. And it's also where God's glory dwelt among the people. God himself dwelt in the tabernacle among his people. And the temple which was later built by Solomon in Jerusalem served the same function. It was just a permanent location. Okay, So again, in the temple, same thing. The presence of God dwelt there among his people and sacrifices were offered up in the temple. Now, if you remember back to the mountaintop where God made the covenant with Israel, again, back in Exodus, he made the covenant with them and he said, you do these things, I will be your God. If you go away and you worship idols, 
I will not only depart from you and I won't be with you, but you will be taken into exile. You will be taken out of this land. And that's sadly what happened to Israel. If we look at Ezekiel 11.23, which should be on the screen, it says, uh, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. This is talking about in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he came in after Israel turned away, he ransacked Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple, and he took the people away into slavery. And if you notice in this passage in Ezekiel 11:23, it says, at that time, this is when the prophet was writing, at that time, when Nebuchadnezzar came in, the glory of God left the temple, went to the east up on the mountain, and, re- and it said it was the glory of God, it says, was standing on the mountain on the east side of the city. And this mountain is the Mount of Olives. And you're asking, okay, you just took us through like the whole Bible. What does this have to do with Jesus entering the temple? Well, here it is, okay? Jesus Christ in this passage, who is in Hebrews 1-3 described as the radiance of the glory of God, is coming down from the Mount of Olives. He's declaring himself king, and he's entering the temple that foreshadowed him. So the point here, or sorry, he enters the temple and then he leaves, okay? So the point here is the glory of God no longer dwells in a temple made by hands. The glory of God dwells in the, temp- the true temple who is Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel, God among us. He said, uh, in Jesus' words, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And he wasn't talking about a building, he was talking about himself being crucified and resurrected. In Matthew 12, 6, Jesus said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. The true dwelling place of God among men is Jesus. And today, God dwells among his people through Christ. Think about it. Though Christ ascended into heaven, and by the way, when he ascended into heaven, it was from the Mount of Olives, which is kind of cool. He, he goes up to heaven from the Mount of Olives. But when he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was sent down to, to indwell believers, to indwell Christians. And now, Christ is able to live in through us. We are united with Christ because the Holy Spirit has come down to live in us. So God now dwells. He makes his presence in Christians. If you are a Christian, God is dwelling in you. We no longer need a building. We are the building. We are together that temple that's being built into a holy place for God. Paul says that this is one of the mysteries in the scriptures that was concealed all throughout the Old Testament, but it's now revealed in Christ. That Christ, through the Spirit, lives in Christians from among every nation, tribe, and tongue, and that Christians are being built into a holy temple for God because he dwells in us. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you to think about this this morning. If the holy God dwells in you through the Holy Spirit, we ought to pursue holiness. Christ did not give his life and go to the cross so that he could reside in a people who are content to just squeak into heaven and live however they want. But he gave his life to make for himself a people that were holy and would live as his own possession. And to be holy means to be set apart from the world unto God. So when we strive for holiness, we're seeking by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that reflects what we've already been declared in Christ. 
again, striving for holiness is to seek by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to live in a way that reflects what we've already been declared in Christ. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, says this about the Holy Spirit living in us. He says, He is called the Holy Spirit, and he is sent primarily to make us holy, to conform us to the character of God. If Christ dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, then he is making us holy, praise God. And Christians, we should be able to look at our lives, our marriages, our parenting, our life in the church, and we should be able to look back and say, praise God, he is making me holy. I can see that he is living in me. It testifies within me that I am becoming more and more like Christ. Praise God, by his grace, I am becoming holy but I would encourage you to examine your hearts this morning and ask yourself some questions. Are you being convicted about areas in your life that don't align with God's word and his will? And are you being convicted of them so that you repent? Or are you living in some of these things and just letting them be and not really battling and making war and striving to kill them? And if that is you, I'd encourage you this morning to make war against your sin so that you can Reflect the holiness that Christ has already declared you to be. I, I, I talk to different people sometimes and they act as though, well, God is sovereign, so if he wants me to stop doing the sin, he's going to have to take it out of my life. Well, guess what? You are 100% responsible for your sin and you are responsible to kill it and you're responsible to pursue holiness by striving in God's power to kill sin. And it looks like fighting on your knees in prayer, getting in the word, and getting around Christian community to stop making excuses and to just pursue making war against your sin. It gets tiring talking to people who have these issues and act as though God just needs to weed out their sin and they're not in their Bible and they're not in Christian community and they're not praying about it. And if this is you you this morning, please pursue holiness so that God can get glory in your life and your joy will be full. The Holy Spirit lives in you to make you holy. So this morning, as we think about the Holy Spirit living in us, may it drive us to action, to striving in the power of the Spirit, humbly depending on his help to kill sin. I urge you this morning to give your life in worship of the king who is meek enough to ride in on a donkey but will one day ride in majestically on a horse of war to finish his battle against sin and death. He has come humbly on a donkey and went to a cross so that he could save people from all over the world. And that is his mercy and his grace and his love. And yet at the same time, he is not going to overlook sin forever. There is a time he will come back and he will destroy what remains of sin. So I encourage you again this morning, if you're not trusting in Christ, know that he has done everything to save you. All you have to do is repent and believe. Give your life to him and you will be spared and you will be in his kingdom. But if you don't, he will come back to make war. And I encourage you this morning to not live for the kingdom of this world. I know that there's a lot of things going on politically 
and some people feel uncertain. I know that as you look across the world, there are things like ISIS rising up. I encourage you not to be consumed by the things of the world, but to look and place your hope in Christ, who is the head of a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom that we can trust in, a kingdom that will have victory, and a kingdom that is eternal. And lastly, I would encourage you this morning to be holy, because the one who dwells in you is holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I praise you so much that you are not the kind of king who is like a worldly king that comes in and power and dominates. Though you could have, and you, had, you would have every right to do so. You came humbly, meekly, in love, and you relentlessly pursued sinners like us. And we praise you, Lord. You have all of our worship. May our lives be holy so that you get glory, our joy would be full, and the world sees the gospel is true. And may we, not living for this world, bring the gospel to all those you've placed in our lives so they may experience the true change that comes from being brought from darkness and into light. We thank you and we praise you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.